The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. What if you gave a speech and no one recorded it? Well, that's what happened to me by accident at our North American Annual Conference of the International Association for Near-Death Studies, which was held this past Labor Day weekend at Newport Beach, California. Welcome to IN's NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. One of the hard lessons life teaches is that the best laid plans of men and women often don't work out as intended. The topic of my talk was, in a nutshell, how... Organized religion and mainstream science have both sold out the pursuit of truth for a variety of self-serving reasons, leaving humanity both confused and holding the bag. I conclude by pointing out how near-death experiencers can help straighten out the mess. For reasons of time, I had to divide the talk between this show and the next. Not a problem for those who listen when both shows are already archived, but a wait for those listening live today. Please let me know what you think about what I had to say at the conference. We're All Bozos on This Bus was the title of an album released in 1971 by California's radio comedy team, Firesign Theater. And while I was trying to arrange a bus ticket for one of my crazier church members the other day, the title and the idea came back, quote, like the hot kiss at the end of a wet fist, to use one of Firesign's more memorable punchlines. How many of you believe in reincarnation? There's overwhelming evidence for the concept of reincarnation, from the stories that come out of hypnotic regression to children's waking memories of previous lives. So the question has to be asked, if going into the light is so awesome, so magnificent the embodiment of eternal love, then what are we doing back here on Earth? Are we crazy? I think the answer has to be yes. We must be crazy to leave the light and return to life on earth. We're like children who have run away from a loving home to join the circus. We're all bozos on this bus. And then I remembered a story I'd heard on a bus. It was from a man named Chris uh, as we returned on a bus to the airport from the IONS convention in Denver a few years back. He said he had died and found himself merging into the light of God. It was amazing. But as he felt himself being drawn in, he said, When the light reached my genitals, I had a moment's doubt. God, he said, I'm only 20 years old. Instantly, he was separated again, found himself in a kind of waiting room, waiting to go back into his body. By the time we talked, he was a nurse practitioner providing desperately needed medical care in some remote part of Alaska, doing God's work. Was he crazy for rejecting the merge with God? Well, not as crazy as some, perhaps, but crazy nonetheless. Stories of separation from the light we humans tell ourselves begin, I guess, with Lucifer and the fallen angels who supposedly ego-tripped their way from heaven to earth. Was it Lucifer's pride, injured by the creation of humans, or a desire to be like God that caused that fall? Another one of my uh, church congregation believes we are all fallen angels trying to earn our way back into heaven. The early fathers of the Christian church assumed that the fallen angels became the pagan gods, Jupiter and Apollo, Athena, Isis and the like, 
who bred with humans to produce the semi-divine offspring of Egyptian Greek mythology. The Bible calls the Nephilim the hero giants of old in Genesis. The key separation from God, the separation from God's story in our Judeo-Christian library is that of Adam and Eve, who walked with God in the Garden of Eden until the serpent tempted the couple to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We see them as blissfully happy beings who chose to do the one thing God tells them they must not do, since it will bring separation from love. So an angel drives them out of the garden, away from the tree of eternal life, so that they will not exist as both immortal and fallen. They're forced to join the rest of the world, already in progress, outside of the hedged protection of Eden, where they had been clothed in the grace of God. A similar story is told of Gautama Buddha, Siddhartha, who was raised in a palatial setting without any evidence of poverty, sickness, old age, or death. Everything was designed to bring the young prince every comfort and pleasure and to shield him from every problem and pain of existence. And when he left the protection of the palace and saw for himself the suffering of the world, he declared this existence in the world to be a cruel illusion. And then there's the story of Jesus, who many believe was a co-equal part of the light that separated itself from the eternal to a manifest as a man, to save mankind from this dark world's addiction to self-destruction. Christians believe his death on the cross made possible humanity's reconnection with the light. That is, those souls who had died before his sacrifice could now be led into the light by Christ. And all who followed could go there as well, free will permitting, of course. The Adam-Buddha story is the first half of the hero's journey tale. The loss of paradise and the subsequent recognition of the illusory nature of desire and striving in this life on earth. The second half of the story, the Jesus story, is the hero who sacrifices himself to reconnect mankind with the light, the true light from which we came. And that story gets told over and over again. It's the third part of the Matrix movies where Neo offers himself to the machine to make peace. It's the theme of the new movie, The Giver, where the hero carries a baby and the collective memories and guilt of humanity on a journey across the boundary of death to our eternal home so that people can feel again. It's a collective action that opens the hearts of those left behind who had forgotten how to love. With the establishment of the Western Church, Christians formally rejected the notion of reincarnation. After all, now that the gates of heaven were open, why would a soul voluntarily separate itself from God to return to this place of suffering? You'd have to be crazy, right? And yet, here we are again, all bozos on this bus. Now, traditional believers in reincarnation would not call us crazy for wanting to come back, just unenlightened. They argue we return to improve our chances for enlightenment in order to achieve paradise. But since NDEs demonstrate paradise is already available to us, isn't our being here just an excuse to indulge our passions for the game? I call the simulated stimulation of life on Earth a game because it's very much equivalent to the addictions many of us develop for computer games where our avatars strive for success in war or sex, money or power, or are driven by the allure of the technology itself. For example, along with the inspirational film version of Heaven is for Real, is a film titled Enter the Void. It's about how a low-life drug addict 
who never even looks for the light after he dies of an overdose, simply starts scouting for couples having sex so he can be born again. There's an addiction to life on this planet that we must take into account when we discuss our yearning for the love of God. Like the villain Cypher in the Matrix movies, we may sell out the truth just because we yearn for that tasty morsel of steak our fantasy world seems to offer. Like Eve and the apple, the serpent can lure us with steak as well. In the room where I take my morning shower hangs a print of an Edward Hicks peaceable kingdom. It serves to remind me each day where the garden is and where I am not. Edward Hicks, 1780 to 1849, was a Pennsylvania Quaker, which means a minister in the Society of Friends, whose skills at painting wagons, tavern signs, and eventually canvas conflicted with the plain-living lifestyles of the Quaker faith. Yet he became one of the most honored of Quakers because he embodied in the 61 renditions of his Peaceable Kingdom paintings the values and yearnings of Quaker faith. That place described in Isaiah 11 where the wolf will lie, will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Hicks discovered a style later embraced by children's books, books illustrators, uh, which established the big eyes approach to grabbing the viewer's attention. We and children more than others know eyes are windows to the soul, or as Quakers might say, to the divine spark within. The Quaker form of silent worship broken only when the divine spark is moved to speak makes ministers of us all. Hicks was no doubt empowered by the Quaker belief in an inner light. Each of us has been given to guide us and remind us of our own divine nature. Cultivating our own inner light begins to harmonize us with the inner light of others and with the great light of the spirit that waits to collect us into the hereafter. In my peaceable kingdom print, Hicks portrays Quakers and Indians meeting in friendship on the banks of the river while in the wooded meadow the lion and the lamb, the bear and the cow, both the predators and the vulnerable lie down together in peace, sharing straw for food instead of eating one another. There is something else going on here, however, that makes this more than an earthly experience. For while the adults on the beach seem to be working out the politics of peace, the children and the animals in the foreground are looking at us, looking at them, and staring through us uh, as well. It's as if the great light stands behind us, the viewers, illuminating and empowering everything. The Quakers, the Indians, and even us admiring the painting are unaware of the great love that lights us from behind, but the animals and the children gazing out, they know. Interestingly enough, this scene resembles to some extent the visions described by those whose near-death experience brings them to a lovely meadow where deceased loved ones and even deceased pets gather to greet the one who has died. When told they must go back, most mourn leaving the love and peace they've witnessed in this place. Who knows, perhaps Edward Hicks himself survived a near-death experience that inspired his obsession with this scene. Or perhaps it represents a shared memory, a vision our inner light preserves of where we come from and where we will return. Before I flip to the uh, we're all bozos on this bus, 
I titled this talk, Healing the World. So we must diagnose what ails us in the first place. What ails us primarily are the lies we tell ourselves about the nature of truth. We learn to lie early in our lives. Remember, where did you go out? What did you do? Nothing. We lie by omission and by commission, and we do it so often we don't even recognize it when it happens, by us or to us. But the lies we tell each other about the nature of truth are the worst of all. Mankind, early on, developed two major disciplines dedicated to the pursuit of truth, religion and science. They were designed to come at truth from both ends of the telescope. Religion would seek truth by trying to see the big picture, God, and how that truth explained everything in heaven and on earth. Meanwhile, science would examine the particular, and from those observations, extrapolate a handle on the truth a bit at a time. From the beginning, the two ways of thinking were at each other's throats. Well, take Adam and Eve, for example. Their faith said, obey God. But scientific inquiry said, well, let's just experiment with this forbidden fruit thing. We might learn something from it. But as we know, there's even more corruption to it than that early example. Our capacity to lie, coupled with our desire for that tasty bite of steak, has corrupted the pursuit of truth by both science and religion on a massive scale. For the last several years, I've served as a chaplain at a major hospital in Maine. Before that, I was ordained a congregational minister. Before that, a seminary graduate with a doctor of ministry degree. Before that, many years as a practicing Quaker. Before that, a student minoring in Eastern Religion Studies at Columbia University. Before that, a kid in Catholic Sunday School. And before that, a childhood near-death experiencer. My mother liked to tell the story that I was born in a Salvation Army hospital where a sign painted on the ceiling above the delivery table read, Jesus saves. The thing that keeps me questioning much of my religious training is my NDE story. When I was about seven and a half, I waded too far into a lake. The slope fell off sharply, and I slipped off the edge into deep water. I came up once let out a scream that emptied my lungs, and then descended slowly to the bottom. When my lungs filled with water, my soul left my body, went into a nearby birch tree, where I could see my mother running up to the shore, to, running down to the shore to jump in, dive down, find me, and pull me up. She dragged me to the shore, threw me face down with a log under my chest, and pushed on my back to try to get the water out of my lungs. In the process, she more or less invented CPR, since the log did chest compressions each time she pushed. No angel was there to tell me. I just knew I had to go back into my body. Now, there's a dream or a series of dreams connected to this story. For years afterward, while growing up, I had this recurring dream that I was falling away from the light down a dark tunnel. I thought it was a memory of my sinking to the bottom of the lake that the light was the sun on the water, and the dark was too deep for the light. Years later, as an adult in my 20s, I returned to the lake and dove down just to see if my dream reflected the reality of sunlight underwater. It did not. The sunlight spread uniformly across the surface of the lake, and 
All the way to the bottom, there was no tunnel effect at all. It was not until years after that, in my first reading about NDEs, that I realized the tunnel and the light were a memory of where I could have gone instead of back into my body. Although my NDE seemed perfectly natural to me as a child, I I didn't talk about it. And even as my mom converted to Catholicism and put us kids in Catholic Sunday school, I never related my NDE to what they were teaching me about how to get God to love you. When I didn't memorize my catechism lessons perfectly, the nun would whack me on the back of my hand with a wooden ruler. When I fainted in church on a hot summer day, I was hauled out and blamed for disrupting the service. And when I became a teen and no longer wanted to confess my desires to the weird priest in the closet, I began to realize that being Catholic was not my idea of a good time. At Columbia University, I found the teaching of Buddhism breathtaking. And yet, I knew that most Buddhists were wrong about there not being a God, since, after all, I had seen from afar the light of God's love. I became a practicing Quaker, marched against the Vietnam War and in favor of civil rights for blacks. I thought religion might help bring peace and justice to the world. But even my Quaker meeting proved to be intolerant. One Easter Sunday, I was moved to speak of Jesus' sacrifice and to thank him for his teachings about love. I was informed after the meeting that, quote, this friend's meeting does not appreciate hearing about Jesus during worship. And the human failings of the so-called religious got to me early on as well. One of the first girls I dated confessed to me in tears that at the age of 12, she'd been raped by her Presbyterian choir master. A boy I went to school with was abused by the local Catholic priest. A closeted pedophile pastor who spoke at my ordination later jumped off a bridge after being outed by a same-sex partner. A now Protestant pastor told me over dinner one night how he'd started out as a candidate for the Catholic priesthood but had to leave the seminary because the predominantly gay seminarians shunned him for being a heterosexual. And when religion makes the news, it rarely reflects the notion that compassion and love are the qualities God seeks in us. It's appalling to see Sunni and Shiite Muslims literally at each other's throats, to see Catholics and Protestants still duking it out, even to see Episcopalians fighting with Anglicans over whether women and Gays can be priests and bishops. Oh, and by the way, over who owns that church real estate, anyhow. To add fuel, there are the endless debates over the rules of dogma. Who is entitled to receive communion? Who are you allowed to marry? What are you allowed to eat, to wear, to say? What kinds of sex and birth control can you practice? How many wives are you allowed to have, and are you allowed to get divorced? Muslim women are being stoned to death for not following dress codes, for attempting to get an education, or even wanting a say in whom they will marry. In the past, Orthodox Jews born out of wedlock were not permitted to marry. Catholic suicides couldn't be given a proper proper burial in a Catholic cemetery. The unwarranted shame and suffering inflicted by religions on their own members has been unlimited, and, I would say, unspeakable. 
The stories of corrupt clergy seem to grow apace. Consider the not insignificant failings of priests, ministers, rabbis, imams, and other religious who have brought down whole congregations with their bad behavior. The people thought their clergy person had been sent by God until he or she was caught stealing from the coffers, molesting an older boy, driving under the influence, or seducing the deacon's wife. When Jesus said he was building his church upon the disciple Peter, he knew the weakness of that cornerstone. Peter exhibited many flaws, including denying Jesus three times. We assume Jesus knew what he was doing, however. Peter wasn't perfect, but the light of the Holy Spirit was meant to be Christianity's guide as it formed the congregation. Jesus fulfilled the law and upended it. It's not what you eat, but what you say that can make a person unclean, Jesus told the people. So much for dietary laws. Paul, who'd undergone a near-death experience, proclaimed Gentiles could follow Christ without the painful formality of first being circumcised. In fact, the closer the early church embraced the fundamental teachings of Christ, to love God and love one another, the stronger it became, even in the face of terrible persecutions. Brothers and sisters in Christ took care of one another. They shared everything, matching surplus to need, far better than the communists ever did. But then came the codification of the church by rule and regulation. By the time the Emperor Constantine and the Church Fathers were through, the Christian Church was rebuilt not on love and sharing so much as on a code of rules and a structure of power. Like the Pharisees before them, the Church enforced rules concerning diet, dress, and social mores. Many were designed to accrue power to the Church, and rules for the people were often designed to benefit the clergy. The structure was hierarchical, with the Pope as king, cardinals and bishops as lords to serve him, and priests to serve their bosses and oversee the people. Priests controlled their congregations through the power to forgive or not forgive sin. It is an awesome power to be able to threaten people with eternity in hell. Writings important in Jesus' day, such as the Book of Enoch, were excluded and destroyed, as were many Gnostic writings of the second century, because they did not support the hierarchy. Great minds such as Origins, who's, who dared to speak of reincarnation, were hushed or excommunicated or killed by those who chose what would be included in or excluded from the Bible. In the first century, Jews and Romans gave Christians a hard time after Constantine made Christianity the official state religion. After that, Christians began to persecute the Jews. And it's ironic that it was an attempt to show where Judaism and Christianity had gone wrong that resulted in a latecomer to the religious scene, Mohammed, and the rise of convert-or-die Islam. How do, different religion, how, how do different religions develop? Often they begin with one person, an Abraham, a Paul, or a Mohammed, who has had a mystical experience, a close encounter with a spiritual being or, or with God. Religions start with the kinds of uh, encounters we talk about here on, at IONS this weekend and on my radio show uh, every Monday. Just consider how frequently experiences like NDE meetings with God take place. I'm sure if we didn't understand the commonalities of NDEs, for example, 
Many of the people in, in this room I'm addressing would have grounds to found one or more new religions. Many of these visions reveal there is only one God, which came as news to generations of early followers. Abraham had encounters with God that led him to monotheism. Jews struggled constantly against pagan gods and blamed idol worship for the loss of the ten tribes. Christians struggled mightily, and with some success, to describe the concept of Trinity as monotheist. You'd think with that decision resolved, that there's only one God, religions would be of one mind. But no. The car talk guys on public radio have what they call the Andy scale for smart letters they receive, Andy's being the best. Andy, it seems, posited the notion that one man talking about something he doesn't understand actually knows more than two people talking about something they don't understand. In other words, the more people involved, the dumber things get. I attribute that as the reason Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I'll be. It seems the more people you get into the discussion, the more you need God to straighten it out. Prophet Muhammad was born in the year 570 in Mecca, which, even before Islam, was a principal religious center of Arabia. Pagan Arabs made annual pilgrimages to Mecca to make offerings to Allah, a uh, high deity who had fathered sons and daughters, and to worship at the Kaaba, a black rock some scientists think might be a, have been a meteorite. On his commercial journeys to Syria and Palestine, Muhammad met Jews and Christians and learned something about their religions. It is said Muhammad was a man given to fasting and prayer and was also subject to epileptic seizures. It's uh, not just my theory alone that, given his condition, Muhammad may have had a near-death experience in which he encountered the other side. Whatever the cause, he claimed to have experienced the angel Gabriel and embraced the notion of monotheism. For his preaching and his attacks on paganism, he was driven out of Mecca, but then at Medina he was recognized by the people as the prophet of God. As his followers increased, he conquered several Arabian, Jewish, and Christian tribes, took Mecca in 630, and destroyed the idols of the Kaaba. In 632, he made his last pilgrimage to Mecca with 40,000 followers, and soon after that died in a violent fever at age 63. The rest, as they say, is history. That is to say, a history of religious war. The Catholic Encyclopedia, which is probably not impartial on this matter, says that after Muhammad's death, Muhammadism uh, aspired to become a world power and a universal religion. Quoting from that encyclopedia, the successors of Muhammad affected the conquest of Palestine, Syria, Mesopotamia, Egypt, North Africa, and the south of Spain. The Muslims even crossed the Pyrenees, threatening to stable their horses in St. Peter's and Rome, but were at last defeated by Charles Martel at Tours in 732, only 100 years after the death of Muhammad. In the 8th and 9th centuries, they conquered Persia, Afghanistan, and a large part of India, and in the 12th century, they had already become the absolute masters of all Western Asia, Spain, and North Africa, Sicily, etc. They were finally conquered by the Mongols and Turks in the 13th century, but the new conquerors adopted Muhammad's religion and in the 15th century overthrew the tottering Byzantine Empire 
1453. From that stronghold, Constantinople, they even threatened the German Empire, but were successfully defeated at the gates of Vienna and driven back across the Danube in 1683. Well, we are just about out of time here today, and we'll have to break uh, my talk delivered at uh, the IONS uh, annual convention in Newport Beach this past Labor Day. We'll finish this next week, next Monday at 11 a.m. If you would like to uh, listen to this show again or any others from the past, please visit our Talk Zone website at nderadio.org. And for more information about the International Association for Near-Death Studies, please visit our website at iands.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>